QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Michael Chataway. Michael is a senior lecturer at QUT's School of Justice. His research spans several criminological areas, including fear of crime, violence in the workplace, and the efficacy of virtual reality as a tool to better understand bystander intervention in instances of sexual harassment. In this episode, Jody and Michael discuss his work using apps to collect data on fear of crime in real time, being a young academic and how to manage your early career, and how working in retail is secretly one of the best places to learn life skills. Without any further ado, Michael Chataway. Welcome to How to Academia. Who the heck are you? Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm uh, Michael Chataway. So I'm an academic in the School of Justice. And I'm actually celebrating my fourth year here at QUT this week. So I've been here for four years, which has gone extremely quick. I got the reminder on Facebook the other day. I started around April uh, Fool's Day, which is funny. And I teach uh, research methods to our undergraduate students. And I also teach technology and crime. And I've done a little bit of stuff in the forensic psych units here as well in justice. How'd you get to QUT? Like, what's mm. your career journey? Mm. So I started my undergraduate, I think, back in like 2009, straight out of high school, went straight to university. And I did all of that locally. I did that at Griffith uh, University. And I did a Bachelor of Psychology and I also did a Bachelor of Criminology and Criminal Justice. So I did a dual degree. And then I moved on and did my honours in criminology. I considered and debated going down the psychology path, but for me, I was more interested in, at that stage, actually victimisation and victims, but it soon changed into a different research area, which I think we'll talk about soon. And then I did my PhD. So... I've literally been doing this for many, many years. I think all up, it's probably about eight years of study and didn't stop, didn't have a gap year, went straight through, did all of that. So I'm one of those criminologists that doesn't have lived experiences. There are some of us who work or have worked in different settings in the justice sector or in private organisations, but I'm one of the unique ones that has just gone straight through the academic pathway. What made you interested in a criminology degree? I think at first you watch all these shows like Criminal Minds and, you know, what is the other one? Light CSI. And all that. Yeah, CSI, Miami, all that type of stuff. And you're like intrigued a little bit in terms of whether that actually looks 
like criminology or whether that actually is criminology. So that for me was something that I was interested in knowing a little bit more about. I did a dual degree though, because I was wanting to keep my options open at the end. So I, you know, wanted to make sure I had like two sort of disciplines that I could fall back on. And so that's why I was sort of drawn to psychology as well, because I think there's a really nice overlap there between the two disciplines. I think psychology has informed a lot of the way we think about crime and I think about how people perpetrate crime and also how we go about rehabilitating offenders as well and things like that. So that's what's really started my journey into criminology and I was really drawn to it. And then as I sort of moved through my undergraduate studies, I learned that there's a lot more to criminology than just criminal profiling. And I think that's also what a lot of our students learn as they move through the degree that, you know, there's so much more to this discipline than just that. And then I started to get interested in other things, victimization and how people think about crime and fear crime. And that's sort of where my research has sort of headed. What made you decide to be an academic? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. For me, I liked the the freedom. I liked the autonomy that you get with being an academic. Uh, You get to choose your own research career pathway. You get to decide what you want to look at. And I like that freedom, uh, whereas I don't think you necessarily get that in, you know, the private sector or in a corporate job. (laughs) Um, So I liked that aspect of academia. I also... I like research. I've always been that type of person that has really liked doing research and finding out things and answering difficult questions and, you know, testing theories and doing all that type of stuff. So for me, I've always really been attracted to that side of things. And so it just seemed like a logical step after my undergrad. But I would be lying to say that I didn't think about going in an entirely different direction. So I have thought about going through clinical psychology pathways and becoming a clinical psychologist. At one stage, I was in my undergrad really heavily focusing on units around cognitive neuroscience and cognitive psychology. So I had a really big interest and fascination there around uh, neuropsychology. And that was potentially one of the paths that I was going to take. But in the end, I went down the academic route. And yeah. I mean... So many career changes that people have these days that Mm. I just think we should never rule anything out, Michael. Exactly. You know, in a few years' time, I could be, I don't know, opening up a business. I mean, I'll come sit on your couch. Some type of consultation. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about your research. What, What is it that drives you in your research? So I, for the last few years, have been really looking at fear of crime. So I've been really interested in how we go about measuring people's fear in the moment or in real time. So a lot of the work that I've been doing of late has involved the use of mobile apps and technologies to better understand fear of crime as sort of this context-dependent experience or something that occurs within the immediate environment per se. So I've been doing that for the last few years, but my research has actually taken a new uh, direction recently. And I'm now looking at fear of occupational violence and workplace victimization in your high risk professions. So 
I'm doing some interesting work at the moment in healthcare. So I'm looking at violence that occurs uh, among nursing and midwifery professions, because we know that that is quite significant. Um, you know, that there's a high prevalence there, but unfortunately it's heavily underreported. And so I'm interested in one, the reasons for why that underreporting occurs, but mm. also looking at how we can collect better data to really understand what is going on in hospitals in terms of violence, whether that be patient violence against a nurse or a midwife, or whether that be staff on staff uh, violence as well is another interest area of mine. But what we really lack in that area and in that space is good quality data. And so what I'm trying to do is introduce apps into the equation here and use them as a means to collect real-time information about experiences of occupational violence when someone is on their shift, essentially. Do nurses have time to do that? That is what we're currently piloting and trying to work out. And obviously COVID has put a huge spanner into the works because we know that, you know, there's a lot of pressures and stresses on nurses at the moment within the health system. So part of this first uh, stage of the research is to actually see whether it's feasible or not to collect this data. And we're trialing whether we can, you know, delay triggers in a smartphone so that, you know, they go off, you know, low peak times so people have time to sort of report incidents that have occurred over the last few hours for example but the goal is to try and get incident data that is as close to the event as possible so we can get a really accurate picture of what is going on in these places so we can develop interventions to you know prevent these types of things from occurring um, against nurses but yeah going back to your your question there it's something that we're definitely looking into as part of our first pilot or feasibility study. If you're looking at prevention, mm. why are you not working with perpetrators? Yeah, <laughs> I think um, there's, I want to look at the workplace dynamics first. I think offenders are definitely important to the whole story and the whole narrative, but I think I'm really interested in how the workplace environment is sort of designed and how it may present opportunities for these types of offences to occur. So when you look at Queensland Health and some of their guidelines around occupational violence prevention, they actually list a lot of criminological work, right? So they list things like SEPTED, crime prevention through environmental design. And they talk a lot about modifying different aspects of the built environment and that is considered when they go in and design wards or when they go in and they design hospitals. So we know there's elements of criminology there that are being applied, but there isn't actually a lot of criminologists working in this space. Mm. And I think that's also really quite interesting as well because there's a lot of interdisciplinary work here that I think we can really start to bring to the forefront to sort of develop really interdisciplinary solutions to these problems and also quite innovative solutions. So, yeah. yeah. What drove the shift in your research interest? So I, as I said before, I did some research uh, with apps in the community and I collected a whole bunch of different data points from different places of people's perceptions of crime and their fear of crime using a mobile app. And 
Part of that data collection process actually involved the collection of qualitative data. So I asked people to tell me why they didn't feel worried within a particular space, as well as why they did feel worried in a particular space. And what I actually found was that a lot of people were referencing their workplaces. So I knew that a lot of people were actually filling out the survey within their working environment. And to me, that was really interesting. And they weren't necessarily filling it out as they were, you know, popping down to the shops and going to the neighbourhood. They were always sort of filling it out at work. And I wanted to know from there a little bit more about what was going on within workplaces. And part of my research also looks at incivilities. And so incivilities are just, you know, low-level breaches of community standards, not necessarily crime, but they signal the potential for crime in an area. So things like graffiti, uh, litter and all that type of stuff that you might see in an area that might signify to someone that there's an issue or there's a problem. Important to note that obviously not all forms of graffiti are negative, right? They may represent street art and things like that. But we can also apply that in the work context as well. There are incivilities that we have and come across within work environments that signal the potential for quite serious behaviours to occur down the line. So things like violence and that type of stuff. So yeah, it really grew from my PhD research using apps in the community. And that qualitative data was actually really important Mm. for finding that. I did not get that out of the quantitative data, obviously, which is funny because I'm the statistics person, so I don't do a lot of qual work. But You are the stats dude. How do you just reconcile qualitative and quantitative research? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. It's also interesting because I'm in a school that's a very critical criminology school mm. uh, and I'm a mainstream criminologist if you want to call it that, right? Um, So I did all my training in a school that didn't really talk about critical criminology. It was maybe one module within one particular unit and that was it. Whereas, you know, you come into the School of Justice and there's, you know, a lot of a focus on social justice. There's a lot of focus on critical criminology and the theories that exist in there and the frameworks that exist within that particular discipline and a lot of the work is qualitative as well and so for me I I recognize the importance of both qualitative and quantitative research I also recognize the importance of different perspectives and ways of thinking about crime all that type of stuff and I think being in this school has actually really opened my eyes to the need to have qualitative components in my research because if I don't I think I'm missing a lot of that nuance and I think that's really important for uh, better understanding the issues the problems that I'm looking at and things like that. So in the school of justice you are often the youngest person in the room. I am I actually was not alive when the school started (laughs) (laughs) funny um, fact there so I think the school was established in 1992 uh, and I was not I was not alive at that time or if I was I was probably a baby I'm hoping you know your own birth date yes I do (laughs) 
I, I, I can't remember when it was established. I what feel month like it was, it was established? Yeah, what month it was established. But yeah, I was uh, either just born <laughs> or not. I was growing. You're killing me. I'd like just like to say for the record that I was in high school when the school was established. <laughs> What's it like being the youngest person in the room? Uh, it's an experience. It's fun because I think I come into it with a very different perspective to everyone else when we discuss issues and things like that as a school. But it's hard at times. It's hard being a young professional because you have to be aware of certain things that might, you know, come up. As a young professional, you're still kind of figuring out who you are and how you kind of go in the professional world. So what have you found you've needed to draw on to figure out who you are as a young professional? I think for me, I have had to draw upon the advice of my mentors, my people that are very close to me. I actually have one of the things that I would suggest to a lot of people going in who are young into the workplace, into whether that be academia or somewhere else, is to really make sure that you have a strong network in place. And for me, I go to specific people for advice when I am having trouble handling an issue or when I think that, you know, someone is approaching an issue in a way that is connected to my age or connected to me as a person. And that's um, really important is to make sure that you actually have those networks and those people that you can go speak to. And it's actually not, um, you might think, oh, is he talking about, like academics, other academics who are older than him, professors and things like that. No, actually, I will go to my mum for advice, right? I will go and speak to my mum about how to handle difficult situations or I'll speak to my sisters, right, who have gone through it themselves in their careers because they also were the types of people who went straight through high school to university and then straight into the corporate world or into, you know, their profession. So they have a lot of advice and wisdom. So those networks are so important for handling those uh, challenges that might happen when you're just starting out your career. When you are just starting out your career, it can be really intimidating to be in a room full of people who are established. As a young person still figuring out who you are, how do you how did you find your voice in that situation I think that takes time right it it takes a lot of time to sort of read the room with those types of things so when I first started my career in academia I didn't do a lot of talking in meetings I didn't do a lot of talking at events right I sat there and I listened and I think that's really important as well as for a young professional to do that when you first start your jobs you know just observe listen read the room learn what or think about what your colleagues are saying to you because when you get a better sense of who people are that's when you can then start to talk a little bit more at the table and express your opinions and express your views but you have to do that in a respectful way obviously like you can't just go into 
everything with this sense that you are entitled to an opinion and that you need to compete with people and things like that. The beauty of being young is you don't have to worry about those things. You've got so much time to, you know, work through all of these difficult situations in terms of finding your voice. You've got the time. What do you do when you find yourself in conflict with someone much more senior to you? Oh, my God. (laughs) I've had a lot of experiences, not just in, like, academic environments, but also in, um, you know, retail and stuff like that. Actually, side note, working in retail is an excellent (laughs) way to establish really good communication skills and ways of addressing conflict. Just side note. I feel like working in retail is this excellent way just to life prep for working with difficult people. It really is. It just like just shows you how bad the world can be, actually. I've been yelled at in retail. I've had things thrown at me. It's crazy. Crappy hours and poor pay and Mm. have to deal with difficult managers and difficult public and difficult. Mm. I just like all power to those working in retail. We do not value enough. So what do you do when you're in conflict with someone in a more senior position? Yeah, I think conflict's an interesting one and there's a number of different strategies. I was actually listening to uh, one of the earlier podcasts you did with, I think it was Claire, and you talked a lot about, you know, when someone says something that is, I don't know, doesn't feel right, you ask them the question, oh, how did you come to that decision or Why are you thinking that way about this particular issue? And I think that's really important. Self-reflection is really, really important with handling uh, conflict. I think there's some skills and strategies that I use uh, in those situations. So when I'm faced with a difficult issue or a situation and I need to speak to management about it, I will often not use the word I when I'm talking to them. So I will use the word we a lot. So what that conveys to the other person is that I'm here to cooperate, I'm here to collaborate with you to come to an effective solution that benefits everyone. Because oftentimes when you're in a conflict-like situation, it's because, you know, there's there's an issue and you need to think about the needs of those who are affected by that issue. You need to separate them from your own personal views and opinions. And that's why the we language is really important. And I find that if you're in a situation and someone is starting to make it more personal, so they start to use I a lot. So I think we should do this, or I think uh, you are coming to me with this issue because you want to cause trouble and those types of statements, that's a clear signal that you need to get out of that situation. You need to take a pause. So that's another strategy for dealing with conflict is just saying to the person, you know, we're we're obviously uh, both really passionate about this issue and maybe it's time to take a bit of a pause, come back and have a chat about it. And that's where the self-reflection happens. So hopefully you reflect on that experience, but then the other person also reflects on their experience. Now, it's not always going to work. You might come back after that pause and someone might be still very hostile towards you. And that's more of a a reflection, I guess, of them (laughs) and who they are, if that was to occur. But 
I've used that strategy many times and it's been quite effective. You come back and, you know, you resolve the issue quite effectively just by cooperating with the person, not trying to compete with them, right? Never compete with anyone in a conflict because that's when the personal stuff comes out. And particularly if you're a young person, because the, mm. if you start to compete with a manager, it can come across as very hostile. It can also come across like you're being a smart ass, essentially. So you need to be really careful in your careers that when you start with that type of stuff. So one of the things we don't talk about then is when things are going going really well and you're kicking goals mm. and things are excellent, mm. how do you plan your career progression? Yeah, I've recently had a bit of an epiphany. Um, Love epiphanies. <laughs> do share. <laughs> so I used to be the type of person when I started this job where I would work like ridiculous hours. And that was not sustainable that was killing me basically Mm. the stress was killing me from doing all of that stuff you know just working weekends and things like that and I knew that that was just not going to be effective for my career because you know you, you can only sustain that for so long so I over the summer holidays actually had a bit of downtime to think about my career to think about my research and to think about the legacy that I want to leave behind and I sort of came to the realisation that in academia there's a lot of pressure to put in grants and things like that, and there's a lot of pressure to do certain things a certain way because everyone else does it this way, and I have sort of made that decision and come to that decision that I don't want to be like that and I'm going to do things that bring me joy and do the research that, I'm interested in doing, not the research that others are interested in doing or think I should do. And that took a lot of time to sort of work out all of that stuff and to work out what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to do with my career. Because at the end of the day, right, no one's like, this is morbid, sorry, but when, we do when morbid. You, when you die, um, no one's going to remember that paper you published 40 years ago, right? They're not going to recall that really excellent piece of work you did. They're going to remember you for the type of person you are and who you are as an individual. So I think that's something that I'm really cognizant of and really wanting to make sure that I'm doing the work that brings me joy and I'm happy and I'm not just doing things because of the sake of doing things. I think the thing with coming to that point is recognising that it may take my career longer to reach the upper echelons to get where I want it to get, but I'll still get there and I'll be a better me along the way. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I think over that time of the holidays, over summer holidays, it just made it clear to me that probably I don't have ambitions to go into management at the university level at this point, but that might change. But at this stage, I don't have those ambitions. I may have a few years ago, but now I'm 
less so interested in that. I'm all about protecting myself and, you know, not, not living to work. Mm. And that's hard when you're young and starting out your career and there's all of these expectations put onto you mm. and all of these ideas that if you're young and you don't have a family and you don't mm. have a lot of other obligations, then we can maybe exploit you a bit more. Yeah. Mm. And because I've sacrificed so much over the years, you know, for my career. And that, that, that to me, I do have some regrets in how I've approached that. And that's why I've sort of come to this decision now that, you know, I'm going to take it a lot more slower than what I was. And yeah. So there's this conflict, I guess, that we have in academia around being the academic with the professional practice and being the academic that comes straight in from high school. And I think both can be excellent Mm. academics. What's it like working as an academic without the lived experience? I think it's difficult because, like you were saying before, there's like benefits to both, right? There's benefits to being an academic who has worked in, you know, some area or industry for a certain period of time and has come back into academia. And then there's benefits to also being just, you know, going straight through a university and straight into an academic career. The question I really want to ask is, from a student perspective, we often see that frontline work experience as value adding to academic teaching. As an excellent young scholar, without that frontline experience, what do you bring to the job that's really important? Yeah, I think I'm a really creative person. So I like, I like to, you know, do really creative things in the research space, use technology in different ways, harness technology in a way to better understand social problems and issues. So I think as someone who doesn't or who hasn't worked in, say, the, the justice sector, I sort of come into it and approach it in a very different way because I've got different skills in research, quantitative methods, that type of stuff that I can bring to the table to you know, essentially do research. What bridges the gap in terms of your skill set when you're working with people on the front line that enables you to understand their position? Yeah, I think um, there's many ways that you can sort of address that and do that in your research. So I do a lot of collaborative research. So I will work with people who work in industry and I will involve them in my projects. And I think going back to the research that I've uh, talked about a few moments ago around the nurses and the midwives, something that I'm really mindful of is involving nurses and midwives in the development of those survey instruments and the app design. So we would refer to that sort of as co-design, right? Involving them in the process of actually creating instruments, working with them to better understand occupational violence and their lived experiences of it. So that's one way that you can sort of bridge that gap in terms of the research space is bringing people on to projects who have that lived experience, who can provide that really critical information to get the most out of your research. So that's what I would 
would do. And I also do that in the teaching space as well. So I will invite industry speakers to provide lectures and guest lectures um, about their experiences of working on the front line. A lot of our students are young and launching into their careers. What would be your advice to them as beginning professionals? One of the things that I would say is really important uh, is don't be so hard on yourself. And connected to that, always ask questions when you're unsure about things. Always express a willingness to learn and don't be afraid to make mistakes because I have made so many mistakes in my career. I call them teachable moments. Very Oprah of you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so they, they're important, right? And, in fact, if you haven't made mistakes in your career, you're probably doing it wrong. So um, doing it wrong. <laughs> Like I think everyone, every academic will have horrifying stories um, of times that they've made mistakes. Every also, professional. Sorry, yeah. every professional will have stories of times when they have made mistakes. Yeah. That's part yeah. of the point of these podcasts. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and that's important because if you aren't willing to admit to those mistakes, then um, that's when others other people can be really significantly affected by your decisions and your choices. So in the medical profession, they have this term called cowboys or doctor cowboys or cowboy doctors. I don't know if you've heard of it, but essentially they're people who are very overconfident in their abilities and think they have the skills to, you know, perform a particular, you know, in the context of medicine, perform a surgery, for example, when they actually don't have those skills. I actually think cowboys is a term that we can apply across every profession. Everyone's probably come across them. People who just are too confident in their abilities and not expressing a willingness to learn. And they're dangerous, right? We can see why they're dangerous in the medical profession, right? They can lead to significant injury, death, you know, quite serious things. Probably not so much in academia, but you can still harm people if you behave mm. like that. And I think that's really important, making sure that you have a willingness to learn, that you are not afraid to make mistakes, but you need to own up to those mistakes. There's humility in that, and that's really important. And what I would also say is self-care, not overworking yourself, is really important. Mapping out your career on your terms is important and not falling into that trap of overwork because I think that is something that we're going to start to see a lot more of in this COVID environment where people are working from home a lot and struggle to sort of disconnect from work. So I think that's another important piece of advice for people going into, into professions. Talk to me about your favourite theorist and or theory? I don't have a favourite theorist. <laughs> so I really like environmental criminology and obviously it's key to my work. I'm very interested in the spatiotemporal elements of crime. So, you know, environmental criminology is sort of a framework 
um, is something that I really enjoy learning about and really enjoy reading about the latest developments there. I do like simple theories, so I am a fan of, you know, routine activities theory. I know many of my colleagues aren't a fan and have told me that they're not a fan of things like rational choice theory and so on. But there's more to those theories than just what you read in textbooks, right? Like, I think rational choice theory gets a really bad rap, to be honest. I think a lot of people just see it as weighing up the costs and benefits of crime. But there's so much more to that. Like, there's a human brain that is responsible for making those very complex decisions. They're actually not as straightforward as you think, right? So there's a whole new sort of field emerging around that aspect of rational choice as well, looking at cognition, uh, which I think is really important. But yeah, I don't have a particular theorist that I gel with or that I subscribe to. Do you have a favourite read? Um, oh, I really like, people who have read my work know that I really like Jonathan Jackson's work in the fear of crime space and I cite him heavily and I really like the way he writes, the way that he thinks about uh, fear of crime and theorises about it. He will often bring in the psychological literature uh, into the discussion of fear of crime, which is really appealing to me, obviously, because I have a psych background. So I really like his work. I also like his work in procedural justice, although it's not an area that I really follow very often. I've read some of that stuff as well, and I really like that work. What is your top tips for students in surviving university? I think... Similar to what I was talking about before, uh, when you go into, you know, your first job out of uh, your degree, I think having strong networks is really important. So making sure that you have a, a solid group of friends that you can talk to about issues that you might come across throughout your degree, who can help you, give you advice. That's really critical and important, making sure you have those strong networks in place. It's also really important to attend class, right? And what I mean by attendance is not just sitting in the room and listening, but also engaging as much as possible, talking to your lecturers, talking to your tutors. They're humans as well. They're not robots. We can take a joke, and or I would hope most of us can. Um, we can take jokes and we're there to have, you know, conversations with you. Use us to your advantage. You know, ask us all the questions, you know, around assessment, but also material and content. So engagement's really important. A pet peeve of mine is, unfortunately, the rise in online study groups, I think, Although I like that students are really engaging with their whole cohort, I think they can sometimes they can sometimes be an issue if you have lots and lots of students giving different opinions about assessment on them. So those private forums I don't think are as effective as having a close-knit group of students that you can meet in person, catch up each week, at uni and have a coffee with or, you know, go out and have a lunch together after your lecture or after an exam and things like that. I think that's a more effective use of networks than, say, your online study forums, which I think can sometimes create a lot of anxiety for students. That is totally not necessary. I feel like online study groups 
particularly Facebook chat groups, can sometimes be seen as a shortcut for students to getting understanding. The problem yes. being, though, that you're asking people that don't necessarily have more understanding than you do. And so the shortcut actually lengthens things significantly. No, it's a lot easier just to go to class. Um, or email your lecturer. Or email your lecturer or post to your discussion board, then, yeah, engage in those types of groups. Because, yeah, they can be very, unfortunately, they can be toxic and, you know, that's not helpful at all. So, yeah, those would be sort of probably my tips. But, yeah, don't be so hard on yourself. Look after yourselves. Don't overdo university. You know, the social aspects of university are also important. I feel like that's a top tip that just keeps coming back and back. The social aspects mm. are also really important at university. Well, I'm, still, I'm still friends with people that I did my undergraduate with and I have them as part of my network as well of people who I go to for advice about not just my career and about what I'm doing in academia, but also just in general life advice. So those people you meet at university can be friends forever, right? And that's really important. Michael Shadoway, it is excellent having you as a colleague and I love the perspective and often the courage and critical thinking that you bring into a room. I appreciate having you in my world. Thanks so much for doing How to Academia. Thanks for having me. Peace out. <laughs>